This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now, it's time to decentralize. Well, for those of you just joining us, welcome. You've landed in the Decentralized Trials house here on Clubhouse. Uh, We do gather here every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern. Some of you may be listening through your favorite podcast platform. So whether you are joining us by podcast, hit subscribe, or here on Clubhouse, be sure to follow the Decentralized Trials Club. If you're listening to us on a replay or a podcast, feel free to join us live one Friday. We are here every Friday from 12 to 1, and the fun part of joining us live is being on the conversation. Each week, different topics related to decentralized clinical trials, whether patient perspective, site perspective, technical issues, regulatory, legal, policy considerations, the list goes on and on. You can find replays here on Clubhouse, and we're starting to uh, add past episodes that have been recorded uh, to be posted through those podcast platforms as well. So feel free to scroll back in time and check out topics from the past that may be of interest or just keep joining us for these new topics. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't say a message that Amir has reminded me of in the past. Not only take a look at the profiles of people that are speaking here today, give them a tap, maybe you should be following them on LinkedIn or Twitter, but also check out down below here on Clubhouse There are people in this room that share your interest on today's topic. They could be a partner in solving a challenge for you tomorrow. So check out who's joining you here today. See if they may want to um, uh, be a good connection for you on LinkedIn, Twitter, or otherwise. Jane, what am I forgetting? You covered it. We're ready. We are ready. So uh, it was just last week that jane you were down in texas right i was actually at this very moment in the lounge at sfo about to go to texas but yeah i got there and everything was outstanding and it was my first ever acrp meeting so i want to say wow it was wonderful and i'm so happy i got to go Thank you to everyone who came to our session and thank you for all the session leaders who really provoked our collective curiosity. Of course, Jane is talking about ACRP, the Association for Clinical Research Professionals and their 2023 annual meeting just last week down in Texas. If you're following uh, friends on LinkedIn, you probably saw a bunch of posts coming out of uh, ACRP, probably with hashtags like ACRP23 or ACRP2023. And you can certainly check yourself uh, back over to LinkedIn and search on those tags and see a lot of great content from a lot of the conversations that were happening there. But that was part of the genesis of inviting some friends to join us here today, including Susan Landis, Executive Director of ACRP, along with some friends, Elisa Cascade from Edvara, and Adam Sampson over at Walgreens. Welcome to you all, and welcome to Clubhouse if it's your first time here as well. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Amir and Jane. So delighted to be here. Thanks for the shout out for ACRP 2023. Now, Jane, yeah, I was a, uh, a long distance admirer watching the progress, watching word clouds and presentation topics coming up uh, on the on my LinkedIn feed. 
But Jane, maybe you could kick us off with some of the some of the thoughts and perspectives you saw and help set up some great questions for conversation with Susan, Elisa, and Adam. Sure. Um, so first, fully disclosing that this was my first experience with ACRP since maybe 2000, because it turned out I was a member. I, I should have been there long ago. Um, so a couple of key takeaways for me. The first is I am so impressed by the activity and engagement in the ACRP chapters across the nation and beyond, frankly, and was really delighted to get to meet some of those chapters and see all the great work they're doing. So that's awesome because I think that that is where a lot of these conversations to work through some of the questions, challenges, or even share, wow, this really went better than I expected is happening. So I will now be joining the NorCal um, chapter, Yahoo, <laughs> overdue. <laughs> um, the second thing, and this was actually a reflection from Amir, because I kept texting all sorts of comments from the great sessions I was in. Amir actually said, wait, is this meeting devoted to DCT? I was like, no, I'm just kind of dialed in on that, but there's all sorts of topics happening. But I really appreciated the diversity of conversations on how clinical trials are evolving, DCTs included, and where that's working and not yet working as well as we'd like it. So th those are a couple of takeaways for me. Well, I'd love to get things started, Susan. If you could share a little like maybe like a four minute, five minute orientation for our audience, folks that aren't familiar with ACRP. Uh, Jane gave us some clues as far as this, you know, incredible footprint of, of local organizations, but who is ACRP? Thanks, Craig, I'm happy to do that. So the Association of Clinical Research Professionals is the only nonprofit association that represents clinical research professionals globally. We have more than 13,000 members, uh, predominantly clinical research coordinators, uh, predominantly actually at the academic site level, but also um, sites um, overall, clinics, um, CROs, sponsors, CRAs, etc. Um, we like to say that we move the people and the practice of clinical research forward. Um, our number one focus area is education and professional development for those in the clinical research profession. Um, we start by answering the question, what is clinical research? Um, we go all the way through training. We are one of only two organizations accredited for certification as a clinical research professional. And then we have an amazing group of 43 fellows in clinical research. Um, I like to say that these are people who have seen it all. Um, and um, strategically, uh, our number one strategic priority um, that surfaced, I would say about three years ago is workforce development. So really looking at how we're going to work together as an industry to fuel and populate um, the next generation of clinical researchers, which we know, um, if anybody on uh, this session knows, there is a global workforce crisis um, in the clinical research industry. So that's a little bit um, about ACRP. Thanks, Susan. And that workforce crisis you know, ACRP was ahead of the topic a couple of years ago, but if people aren't feeling it coming out of the pandemic, I, I feel like now more than ever, it's visceral. Uh, people are seeing study starts being uh, challenged and delayed. Uh, biotech companies that maybe have a certain amount of capital on hand to get their study going. If study start can't happen because your sites are short staffed, in today's markets, you can't really go back and get more capital to keep these things going. So it's it's a it's a real crunch that I think ACRP had seen coming, like a few other groups. Um, but it'll be interesting to talk about a few topics with this group here today, uh, both takeaways around decentralized trials for this audience, but even that intersection with decentralized trials and uh, and workforce. Um, 
Elisa, it sounds like there were quite a few conversations around decentralized at ACRP. Does that surprise you or does that feel like a topic that was important for the stakeholder group to start to understand and bring their voice forward around? Uh, great question. Um, let me first start by saying is that we had an entire technology track throughout the entire program. And so there were a number of different sessions that touched on technology, including how it relates to decentralized trials. And then one of the plenary sessions was specifically on DCT. And it was very interesting, and, I, and I'll let Adam comment as well, because he served as, as part of that DCT panel. But my perception, and you can see this from the word cloud as well as the polls, is that while the sites, I would say, have their juries still out on DCT, the response wasn't negative. It was more about, we need more information, we want to learn more. And I would say that the biggest concern that we heard raised regarding DCT was the PI's responsibility for oversight, especially in the case where there was a third party nursing company that was contracted to deliver sort of hybrid visits and the responsibility of that PI to oversee a third party group performing those services. I, I think that that was, if I could say, um, summarized, probably the biggest concern that was raised through the discussion. Other than that, there was a lot of agreement that we need to be more patient-centric and we need to find ways to make studies more convenient for patients. This topic around investigator oversight is a great one, Elisa, and I think that um, many folks that maybe weren't eyes open to that challenge uh, should have had their eyes open at the end of last year when uh, the European recommendations on decentralized were published. And for those that have looked at that document, investigator oversight is all over it in terms of being able to demonstrate it, show plans for it, and even in some cases suggesting that the investigator should have access to the contracts pharma is putting in place with third-party visiting nurses, which I think may be a little tricky for a lot of folks on the pharma side. Um, I found it interesting, Elisa, when the FDA draft guidance came out, there are a lot of great um, perspectives and considerations in there. I didn't see quite as heavy um, a lean on investigator oversight there like I saw in Europe. Do you sense the pressure is pretty equal for investigators in US and Europe right now? Is that just a slightly different lean for the uh, regulatory guidance? I have a feeling that it's more the lean on the document than it is a difference in the importance of the investigator oversight. And I'll just say that I followed up, um, I happened to run into um, Eric Pittman, who is in the um, bioresearch monitoring, um, sort of he's the program division director in the West region. And we were chatting in the hallway not long after the session. And it was interesting because a lot of the panel kept saying, this was like two days before the guidance came out, kept saying, we'd really like the FDA to weigh in. We'd really like the FDA to weigh in. They now have since weighed in. But at the time, what he said to me was, it's the responsibility of the investigator. I don't know what else they need from the FDA. It's the responsibility of the investigator. But what followed was a really interesting discussion that I'd, I'd like to share, which is we seem to accentuate the negative today with 483s and there's great data out there on all of the pitfalls that we've had in these clinical trials from a monitoring perspective. But we don't accentuate the positive and we don't hear positive use cases and success stories coming out. And I made that point to Eric and I said, can you start to feed back the positive success stories? What models have worked in DCT and have contributed to product approvals? And he said that they can't, that it's proprietary to the sponsor of the study and they can't share that information. And so for me, Craig, I sort of say back to you, and if there's pharma sponsors on this call, 
what can DTRA and or Transcelerate do, these sort of, you know, collaborations do to de-identify, but start to demystify by putting success stories out there on what we know have worked. I love that setup, Elisa. We have um, our evidence of impact initiative within DTRA to collect those stories. And uh, for folks that are interested, we have a nascent young initiative scoping out a registry to be able to track which studies in our environment are using which decentralized methods and tools within. And that type of a registry is so important for us, not only to be able to understand which regulatory approvals included different types of approaches, but even as we're looking at performance indicators with KMR, CMR, Sightline, and other tools, how can we have confidence to segment and understand which of those studies used a decentralized method within? We just don't have that data today. And so it is <clears throat> a uh, priority for us at DTRA this year to help to get this type of capability up and running, working together with our biopharma sponsors in DTRA to help to build that in a way that they can share that data um, inbound, the right information can be de-identified and the rest can be um, made broadly accessible. It's such a it's such a great challenge, Elisa, in terms of helping people to demystify and removing some of the veil of where there are successes and good things happening here. Jane, did I get that right? Oh, you got it exactly right. And what's interesting to me is I was working on the scoping. So Elisa, you're definitely on target here. A lot of people assume that all of that information is readily available somewhere. And my assessment thus far is actually prior to the FDA guidance, it isn't always even included in every protocol. It is in informed consent documents and who reviews those ethics boards, but that's not typically tracked in a way that we can simply consolidate the information and measure impact. Some great sources of opportunity for us to pull exactly that together. Hey, Adam, um, you know, Elisa had mentioned um, some great conversation around investigator oversight, um, helping you make sure we're getting some of the stories out there of where these tools are being used. Uh, but she also mentioned around site-facing technology. And I know that there's a lot of angst in the, in the ecosystem right now around the technical burden that's being thrust on investigator sites. Uh, how did that come through at the ACRP meeting? And are there some takeaways or clues for better paths forward that you're starting to sense? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So there was um, quite a few sessions on the technology side. And I think that, you know, one thing that we're learning, I mean, it's been, for many years now, right, there there has been, um, you know, real challenges at the site level in terms of lots of different technologies, EDC, IRT, you know, EPRO, all these different things. I think part of what we're hearing from sites now as well that's kind of a bit new and different is, hey, you know, we've invested in some technology now for ourselves. If it's, it might be in e-consent, it might be e-regulatory. Um, and, you know, they want to be able to use those tools um, consistently across all of their studies. But you have um, oftentimes um, sponsors or CROs coming in, you know, understanding that they, sponsor CROs have their own challenges around around wanting there to be consistency uh, in terms of tools like e-consent and others, but um, it puts sites in a tough position because it's, you know, it's adding additional layers of new technology. And on top of that, potentially, you know, they've invested time and money into their own solutions and not, are not always in a position where um, they're being able to use those across all of their studies. So. I think certainly uh, a theme that continues to be out there is we need ways to either integrate across these platforms or make it easier for for sites um, because I don't think there's necessarily going to be a decrease in the use of technology here, but how do we, and, and I don't think that we can necessarily have one platform that does it all, right? And I think that came up, um, Elisa had brought up in one of the sessions, a really good point around that, that 
depending on the type of site you are, if you're an academic site um, or if you're a health system and you have an EMR or if you're a site that's fully dedicated to clinical trials and you don't have an EMR, your needs for a CTMS or other software are going to be quite different. So, um, you know, being able to kind of sift through, pick the right technology solution, and then be empowered um, to be able to use those solutions um, that you've selected as a site, I think is one thing that we kind of heard loud and clear um, from uh, coming from the site ecosystem. And I would imagine, Adam, in some places that's going to be easier than others. You know, I always feel like e-consent is a very reasonable starting place for us there, that there are plenty of institutions that have their own e-consent instance for research. Any institution that does their own academic government-funded research probably has their own e-consent instance. As a sponsor, when I was on the pharma side, all I really cared about were signatures, dates, and versions. I wasn't, the consent wasn't my business necessarily. Is, is that kind of the direction you're sensing? So, I mean, I'm, and this is some anecdotal, um, but not just myself, but others um, working in a site space um, where it, it is quite common still where um, sponsors will want a specific, you know, their, their platform to be used even for things like e-consent. Um, and again, I, I recognize the challenges being on the other side as well um, in terms of wanting consistency. But I do think that um, site burden is high. We all know that um, there are staff shortages on the site side. And I think weighing the cost and benefit of, okay, well, now the sponsor has to have a process in place for being able to quickly validate um, or at least get a level of confidence that this uh, e-consent solution uh, meets, you know, part 11 and other uh, regulatory requirements so that they can then enable sites to use the technology that um, that is fit for purpose for them. Um, I would be curious once we open up to the audience if, if they're seeing other things at the site level, but um, that's a direction that I really hope to see us go in as a way to um, decrease site burden and um, kind of give them back the the power to to use their own tools makes a lot of sense and uh to adam's point we're going to open up the room in about 10 minutes so if you have a thought idea question perspective on today's topic and you're joining us here live on clubhouse start to think about that and uh we'll let you know when it'll be time for you to raise your hand and add your voice certainly keep using the chat in the meantime um if you're participating in DTRA or curious, um, Initiative 4C in DTRA is focused on tech and interoperability. And as they're putting together certain frameworks, there's a heavy lean right now around a lot of the direction that Adam pointed to. How do we start to direct a future where we can define a minimum quality standard of what's an acceptable system and the interoperability around the data fields that matter so that sites can make better use of their own tech stack, get tech provisioned when it's needed. Elisa, I see you uh, have a thought on this one. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to um, build on sort of what you guys have been talking about because I think it goes beyond data collection and into right at the start of study startup and the essential documents, because the sites have their own CTMS, they have their own eBinder, ereg solutions. And so it's not just change management in terms of using my e-consent versus a sponsor e-consent, it's actually double work. So they're already collecting the essential documents on their side. And when a sponsor uses some kind of collaboration portal in the startup phase, the site then would need to download it from their e-reg and upload it into whatever sponsor portal is there for transparency. And so where I think we need to go as an industry is that we need to be integrated. We need to have the technology at the site side connecting into the technology on the sponsor side to enable that document flow. And it's not just documents in, but it's docs out also, because we recognize that ultimately these need to go into sort of TMF. And so this idea of having the interoperability to bring your own technology, it's not just for data capture, it's for all aspects of the study. 
Great call out. Great call out. I see a few friends in the audience here alive that I know are working on solutions around that lane. So I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of thoughts and ideas there. Susan, I'd love to pull back to a topic that you set up at the outset. ACRP has been um, looking at solutions for the workforce challenge for some time. I'd love some thoughts around this intersection of workforce and, and decentralized. You know, there are some that would have hoped that if a visiting nurse from a third party service could take on low acuity visit procedures, could that help relieve some burden on an overly taxed research site? But we also heard from Elisa that that comes with some strings and burden attached to it as well in terms of making sure investigators have the right oversight over that third party. Do you have some thoughts, Susan, around this intersection of workforce and decentralized? Does DCT amplify the challenge or are there some opportunities to contribute to solutions? Thanks, Craig. Yeah, I have some thoughts and I love the idea of pulling back. I think a lot of times when we discuss DCTs, we tend to focus on or go down into the technology element. Um, last fall, um, ACRP did a survey um, on DCTs. We did a think tank on DCTs with Medible, Advanced Clinical, and Cineos. And thinking about the workforce and DCTs, there were really three themes that came out of those sessions um, that impact, you know, in the classic kind of people process and technology um, that impact the people, um, the actual teams that are working on this. The first one was clarity and regulatory requirements. And we now know that this week um, or last Friday, I guess, that we're working to you know, bring more clarity to those requirements. And in fact, ACRP has a working group that's looking across multiple guidance documents from the FDA to look for where there needs to be clarity, to look for where there's conflict among those documents, and to look where there's confusion. So I think if you do pull back and look at the workforce, if you will, um, and we know that these new roles coming out are need to be taken into account with the workforce, but I would say the number one issue that comes up is, uh, you know, clarification regulatory. The second one is the budgets. So, you know, not a surprise, but there's a lot of input that we're receiving regarding sites who are already burdened, as Adam mentioned, regarding sites using this as an opportunity to look at how budgeting is occurring and to usher in potentially a new framework um, for budgets for clinical research sites um, to make sure that they are accurately and adequately getting compensated um, for these new things that are occurring around DCTs. And I think that leads to the third one, which is change management. And if I had to really focus on one area of change management that impacts um, both the workforce, whether you're in the workforce or whether you're early talent coming into the workforce, is training. Um, there is a new level and a new focus and a new need for training when it comes to DCTs. Um, and that right now is not being accounted for in the budgets for sites. Um, and I think that is definitely a part of change management that needs to be looked at um, at the site level for DCTs. Great perspectives and areas of focus, certainly around um, getting these budgets right for these additional new scope items. Uh, sometimes I hear sponsors that might say uh, we're able to shift a cost from A to B because we've used a, a video platform or a third-party nurse and and lose track of the, the cost of oversight, the cost for other uh, training that may be required in terms of making sure that our tasks and the budget are keeping pace with some of these new processes that we're introducing. Um, so great call out there. I did drop for folks on the uh, on the clubhouse a link at the top of the screen to a um, a regulatory town hall we did late last year with folks from FDA and EMA 
just before recommendations and guidance had come out. So it's uh, it's a little predating those recommendations, but a fun opportunity to hear uh, perspective straight from those voices. Um, and Susan, is the survey you mentioned, is that available at the ACRP website? Absolutely. The survey is available. A recap of the think tank is available. We'll have a white paper coming out um, on it as well. Thanks. Hey, Adam. Yeah, I just, if I could, I, I wanted to add something on that um, thread that you mentioned and that uh, Susan picked up on there around tasks being covered by healthcare providers um, that aren't necessarily part of the study team as a way to kind of increase the capacity of the, the workforce for clinical trials. And one thing that um, I'm sure everybody saw as part of this, uh, this new decentralized clinical trials guidance document that came out of the FDA, an area that they did really, that, that was quite, um, uh, imp has great implications, is this idea of a task log. And um, from my interpretation of this, right, the idea is that the PI can allow for any procedures that are done as part of normal standard of care, and that might be a physical exam, vital signs, other things, for those to be done by clinicians who are qualified by education and training, but not necessarily trained on the study, um, and that they don't need to be on the delegation log necessarily or on the 1572, but that the PI would maintain a task log um, and record uh, who did what type of activities. And as long as those align with normal standard practice, there doesn't need to be that additional um, protocol level training. So um, just one area that I thought was really interesting and related to some of what you were talking about there. Very related and very timely. And I, I see uh, Shalon Beg is here in the, uh, in, the, in the live room with us. Shalon and I, on a panel at AACR uh, two weeks ago uh, with some folks from the FDA talking about some of that very topic where in oncology trials, the urgency to allow physicians in the community who are able to administer routine care around standard of care chemo or local imaging centers or local labs, if it's routine care activities. I think it's really exciting to see this 1572 clarity starting to come out in the FDA's guidance. It's an area that we've been working on a bit with FDA and ASCO. And Jane's coming off mute because we also have a team that's starting to unpack that a little further. We are. And actually, to the point of local radiology centers today, we literally went down the rabbit hole of does having a protocol specified acquisition requirement change who goes on the 1572? So we got out of the rabbit hole, but those are the levels of detail that I think that our operators are struggling with. We're not going to try and cover every scenario. The team and I held ourselves accountable today to going back to the 80% rule. Like would, would what we come up with fit 80% of the situations? Um, but stay tuned because I think a future clubhouse might dig into the 1572 and documentation elements from the guidance and some of the questions we're still pondering. Adam, it's a great call out. When I look at the European recommendations, investigator oversight pops out to me as a, as a big item for learning. When I look at the FDA guidance right now, one of the big themes that I'm excited about is exactly what you just called out this clarity around routine care activities, which is so timely to, to see. Doesn't mean that people are absolved of training and other expectations. There's other places to document things. Um, well, if you are just joining us here in the live room or did in the last few minutes, welcome. You've landed in the decentralized trials room here on Clubhouse for those that are joining us live or listening through your favorite podcast. Today, we're joined by leaders from ACRP, the Association for Clinical Research Professionals, talking about their most recent and very successful annual meeting that took place just last week down in Texas. If you followed online with hashtags ACRP23 or ACRP2023 on LinkedIn or other platforms, you probably saw a lot of conversations happening 
on some of these topics, whether decentralized trials, role for improving uh, site tech for uh, for investigator sites, opportunities for uh, for workforce and addressing some of our uh, crisis in terms of the workforce gap in clinical research today, and in particular at our sites with our research coordinators. Now's a great opportunity to hear from you. Now, some of you have been great in our live chat, but this is also a great opportunity if you'd like to join in the conversation. Bottom of your screen should be a little silhouette of a little hand raising. I think it still looks that way. They keep updating Clubhouse. I don't know what the icons there look like anymore, but something at the bottom of your screen should resemble a hand being raised. And that's an opportunity for you to let us know that you have a thought, idea, question, perspective that you'd like to lend. Have a question about some other views from ACRP leaders on this space. Have an experience or perspective of your own from the annual meeting, um, or just a question you'd like to bring forward. Let us know. And I see uh, Christine has already found that button. So uh, I guess it is there, even with this new refresh. Uh, when we bring you up on the stage, we'll probably have you on mute for just a moment. But then we'll be sure to uh, to to want to hear from uh, to hear from you, Amir. Based on the conversation so far, any uh, any surprises, any takeaways so far that are different from what you may have expected? Uh, no, I'm just glad that we were able to put this together soon after ACRP and to be able to really get a diversity of opinions. So I'm very happy to hear that. Fabulous. And I'm going to let Beth Gable now speak because I think we have a lot of topics we want to go through this show. I know we had a, a sort of a, um, so much richness in the content. So I think uh, I'm just keeping quiet, making sure we get enough uh, everyone's views in. Thank you. Well, thank you to Christine for being first to jump up here on stage to the microphone. Welcome to Clubhouse. Welcome to TGIFDCT. You'll have a little unmute button in the lower right of your screen. Come on off mute and introduce yourself for anyone who hasn't had the pleasure and let us know what's on your mind today. Christine's still uh, searching for that unmute button. A little microphone in the lower right corner should be there. Uh, if you tap that, that should get you off mute. Yeah. Perfect. I think I'm there. Okay. Um, just wanted to say I'm very excited about all this. I've been a monitor for way over 20 years. And um, also for 20 years, they've been talking about doing decentralized monitoring, you know, saying any day, any day now. But just to let you guys know, in the last, since the pandemic, I worked on two trials doing remote monitoring. And um, I, like the last one I was on, as we were called in-house CRAs, and we helped um we help the CREs who are on the, on the ground, so to speak, but everything as far as queries, uh, at meeting with the sites, all that kind of stuff from the in-house, from our homes. We closed the database two weeks after the last patient in, which is like unheard of. It was for migraine study. Um, so I'm all about it. I've, um, I mean, clean data fast is what, is what we, I've always learned, you know, is what, they're, they're always saying in the industry and um, the whole thing about having to travel to sites and, you know, um, look at the source, you know, four to six weeks after, after the patient's been seen, it just seems so outmoded to me when you can, when you can uh, check it in within a couple days of the patient visit. So I would love, I would love to find some way to help you guys with your registry that you're coming up with for the decentralized trials. Thanks, Christine. You know, uh, it's interesting. So many of us, when we think about decentralizing in research and, and enabling remote participation, a lot of the times we think just about the participant. And I jumped there myself, uh, certainly. So, so many of the perspectives I've been sharing are, are leaned in around participants having more flexibility in where they participate. But your comment is a great one to pull us back into all stakeholders in this process, including, of course, the monitoring workforce that had to make such substantial shifts in supporting decentralized monitoring uh, during the pandemic. And so it's great to hear the experience that you've been developing. How do you find sites have been receiving your work as a decentralized monitor. Um, on the one hand, I imagine it's nice not to have to do all of the advanced work for somebody to come on site, but 
I imagine there's still quite a substantial amount of effort for them to be prepared for your remote visit. Well, actually, it is harder, I think, to to be an in-house CRA because um, and you have to be an experienced CRA. See, unfortunately, right now for decentralized trials, they're hiring people that are in in-house CRAs that don't have much experience. And you really have to know that if you're on the phone with the site, you want to, and the site doesn't have a lot of time to talk to you. Um, so you want to cover everything in a conversation, recruitment, um, queries that are outstanding, all sorts of things like that. Um, so it's, it's a lot of work and right now I'm between contracts, so I'm looking for it, but I guess what's a little bit <laughs> irritating is that all the jobs that are open say, we're looking for somebody remote. And that means, you know, working from home. Well, 99% of monitors do, you know, they don't go into like Cineos or wherever. Um, they don't go into the CRO. They work from home. So I'm looking for remote monitoring and that's what a lot of people, even the recruiters, don't understand yet. Um, I I don't I'm, I hope I didn't I hope I answered your question semi kind of. No, that was that was fine, Christine. I was also just wondering about what you find the site's perspective is. Oh, of, that's right. That's yeah. Does 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 um, your work as a remote monitor make life easier, or does it require even more preparation and and uh, and, and engagement from uh, from the site when you're connecting remote? I think they they appreciate it more. Um, they, because there's somebody else to talk to if they can't get a hold of the, the CRA. Can you guys still Absolutely hear me? Absolutely can. Well, okay. I think that's a great setup for another guest we have here on the stage, our friend Nelson Ruttrick. Nelson, come on off mute. Remind folks who haven't had the pleasure of who you are. Share your thought or question or perspective. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm Nelson Ruttrick. I own a few research sites in the uh, Northeast uh, United States. And I, um, yeah, I, I talk here about um, site burden. And I uh, have thought about a fair bit lately. Why is it we never hear about CRO burden and we never hear about laboratory vendor burden? And my basic sense of that, even though those, those types of companies have so much work to do and are also overwhelmed with logins and um, password management, right, is that they're big companies and big companies lump it and, and just bill more if they have too much burden, right? And I, in the news last week, I saw IQVIA for the first time in a long time, um, bought a large research site network benchmark. Um, and they've become the high bidder now to buy research sites, um, competing with like a hundred private equity firms and consolidation um, rush here. And I am curious how people on the panel think that will affect DCTs and will affect the current um, atmosphere. Because my, my sense is that it will change things a lot outside of oncology where there's been basically zero consolidation by typical companies here. Nelson, um, um, I'll go first quickly, let the others talk. Um, two, two things on what you said. I think it's a really interesting point you bring that why is it we hear about site burden, not CRO burden? I think you're absolutely right. I think if you're someone like our friend Brad, you know, who's his own boss and you can say whatever you want on LinkedIn, you do, right? Whereas if you're an employee of a company, there's extremely sort of uh, close guidelines on what you can say on social, etc. So that's a really interesting point you bring up. And I agree with you, there has to be burden across stakeholders. In terms of um, the ownership thing, I think all I'll say is at the moment is that's always the elephant in the room, whether it's uh, vendors, whether it's sites, of how much the type of ownership will change things. And that's something we don't talk about enough. And I think people sort of try and leave it as the elephant in the room. But I'm happy to hear other people's comments. But I think that's certainly something that affects quality, everything. And yet we don't really talk about it. 
It's a really interesting share, you know, with this renewed focus on user experience, on experience and design in our research studies, who are we trying to design the experience for? And uh, it's a great call out in terms of the full diversity of stakeholders that are trying, trying their best, right, to move this study forward and get the answers involved. The participant in the site, you're right, certainly jump front to the mind, but so many other stakeholders that with the right experience, they can do their job well. And Nelson, it reminds me so much of that line we always hear on the airplane when we board. In the event of an emergency, put the mask on yourself before tending to a child. How can we expect other stakeholders to deliver a great experience if they themselves are, are having a crappy experience in the process? Nelson, this is Jane. I I don't know nearly as much about this topic as Amir does, for example, but I think that consolidation will actually help those organizations that are part of bigger entities leverage their own software and processes with sponsors. And that's interesting because I don't know if that's going to be the same or different across the big, well, I'll call them networks, versus, say, the independent AROs, academic research orgs. Time will tell for sure. Um, if you have thoughts, questions, feel free to raise your hand, jump on stage. Maybe we're at the ACRP meeting and have a different takeaway that you want to make sure uh, is getting shared into the conversation. Feel free to make like Christine and Nelson and and let us know. We're also keeping an eye, Jane, right on the on the chat. There's always interesting conversation happening there, and I see you know some questions there about this um, about this delegation log and um, um, the, you know, what role will that play? Uh, I don't know that we'll have all the answers to that. I think, Adam, you would help to set that up as, as, an, as an interesting opportunity for us. Well, I suspect is we'll, we'll have a, a follow-up topic a little more specific to the FDA guidance and some of these 1572 questions. But but Adam, as, as you were looking at the guidance, it sounds like that was an area that you were particularly leaned into. Do you see the DOR as being a, a new opportunity for us uh, for an alternative to a task log? I mean, I think the task log really opens up the capability to, I mean, there are the operational challenges of, even in instances where you might have a protocol that says you could have a healthcare provider uh, conduct some conduct an activity as part of standard of care. It's always been unclear, right? Like, does that healthcare provider need to be on the delegation log? And I think in general, people are on the side of the caution and they they put them on there. And that seems like a simple enough thing, but in practice, as probably everybody on this call knows, there's a lot of operational complexity around that uh, in terms of actually getting them to sign the log, getting the PI to sign off on it tracking when they're when they you know leave and these kind of things um so i think that the task log really opens up the ability to do that in a more streamlined way where look the, at the end of the day the pi still needs to know who is performing these type of activities and ensure um, through their team that they have the right experience and capabilities but the ability for the pi and their team to now just log that basically who who did it what they did um, and not necessarily have to go through this process of uh, seeking full, you know, training on on all aspects of the protocol since it's standard of care, and then seeking, you know, training logs and delegation logs, but be able to manage that on their own as part of the task log and make that available. Um, I, I think that's it, it's really revolutionary in terms of the ability to be able to leverage those type of providers. Um, in a meaningful way and in a way that is as it's lower burden, which means they're more likely to, to be willing to contribute. Thanks so much, Adam. Hey, Susan, I'm, I'm wondering with all the great conversation, all the great insight that was uh, shared last week, how does this affect some of the strategy, the direction, the what's coming next from ACRP? 
can you give us a preview of maybe what you've got on the runway for 23 at ACRP and if there's anything that's slightly different uh, based on your insights gained last week? Um, I think that, you know, specifically in the area of DCTs, the FDA has indicated that they really do want the voice of the clinical research professional to be included in the guidance. Um, we're very fortunate to have the working groups working on regulatory clarity, budgets, and change management. And we fully intend to capture that, which is made up of clinical research professionals as working groups, and provide that directly to the FDA and also to other areas. For example, um, the Center of Oncology or Excellence in Oncology um, has asked for that. And we have a panel coming up with the NIH NIDDK as well. So we plan to finish out specifically for the area of DCTs, um, those three areas where we can kind of close the loop on getting the voice of the clinical research professional there. Outside of that, you know, there are a lot of other things to focus on, um, education, professional development, and then, of course, um, workforce development and workforce development at the intersection of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility as well. And Susan, when you mentioned having a voice of uh, clinical research professionals in some of this work, is that specifically the clinical research coordinator voice are there uh, or does that also mean a mix with CRAs, CRCs and different stakeholders? Oh, it's definitely a mix that's representative of our representative of our membership. So it's CRC, CRAs, PIs. I mean, really important element as you've talked about today. Um, so yeah, data managers, regulatory managers, project managers, and then remember, it's not only the actual role, but it's also across organizations as well. And if there's one thing we know about clinical research, it varies widely, roles vary widely, responsibilities within those roles vary widely, and um, not only across roles, but also across organizations. And um, just to help demystify for any that aren't familiar, um, are these stakeholders U.S.-centric? Are they um, rather global? What, where, where in the world are, is, uh, is the ACRP community represented today? Well, ACRP is global, but predominantly in the U.S. About 12% of our members are globally, and that includes Japan, it includes Pakistan, it includes uh, Europe, Australia. Um, so we do have global representation, um, but predominantly in the U.S., I got to give a shout out to the Canadian ACRP branches there. Just, you know, waving my flag over here. Um, can I be selfish and take a question for a moment? Thanks so much. So, Susan, I know that you invested in the survey last year, and I was going to ask for your insights. What, what surprised you most in the responses you saw in that survey, and, and what would you double-click on? Wow, that's a great question. So here's what I've learned. I think what surprised me most was that the amount of people who reported they're not involved in DCTs, um, I think that we're also, you know, oriented toward discussing it that we may at that time not have been aware that only 40% of people were reporting that they're actually involved in some element of DCTs. Um, so I thought that was surprising, but Elisa and Adam, I were talking about this. The other thing that I've learned is what I would call like positivity, positivity, progress, and pain points. That's the way I look at this, which is I have been in the industry long enough to watch the evolution of clinical research, right? For monitoring, remote monitoring, pragmatic clinical trials, and now DCTs. And so I remind myself to stay positive. And I think we heard that at ACRP 2023, um, based on the response of the people in the room when we had our sound off on DCT session, 
the people who are adopting these approaches, the people who are implementing these approaches, I would say they're hopeful. And most importantly, they're hopeful for patients. They're hopeful for participants. They're hopeful that DCTs will expand access. And so I've been reminded when we can get mired in how hard integration is, how hard interoperability is, you know, I can get mired in, you know, the negativity. And I have reminded myself that there is progress to remain positive and then to really focus on, as Dr. Califf taught me when I was at the Duke Clinical Research Institute, to really focus on barrier busters, to really look at those log jam issues, as he called them, and where do we need to put our attention so that we can bust open some of those. You know, it's a great reminder, Susan, that, you know, there's there's burden in the process. And <clears throat> right now there's burden that, that are borne by a lot of different colleagues in the process, as Nelson pointed out. There's burden that's borne by participants that may be disproportionate to uh, for them. Um, and so if we're going to shift that burden, we, we, we very rarely can just make burden go away entirely. Very often it's kind of like matter. You can't create it or destroy it. It just takes on different forms. And so it, it, it may often require many of us to, to take on a little more burden. Some of that links right back to what, Susan, you were saying earlier. If that's the case, we have to acknowledge it quantify it and make sure it's baked into our budget so that if there is additional work that's required by other stakeholders to relieve some of that burden for patients, it just has to be known and acknowledged and, and part of our planning. But it's, uh, it's a great kind of grounding call that it's, it's hard for me to find any stakeholder in research that disagrees with the proposition of making research more accessible for participants of making it more resilient in the case of business continuity issues, or in today's world to make it greener and uh, simply less burden to the planet. So uh, some great, some great call outs there for sure. And Craig, maybe I, I seem to think that one of the best benefits I've gotten in my time in clinical research is the fact that I happen to enter it after schedule of events were standardized. And basically every company decided to put them in their protocols in the same format. And I feel like a huge burden right now is on this delegation of authority responsibility, 1572 topic that maybe we just need more. Maybe the FDA draft guidance just isn't specific enough here and leaves too much room to um, maneuver that's, that's not very helpful. So that's, uh, it seems like that would relieve a lot of burden on everybody here. They just came up with rules. No, the, um, the, our friends at the FDA did want to point out, this is a draft guidance document. It is going to be open for comment and they do look at the comments. So whether if you as an individual, an organization or through an association want to participate in responding, uh, DTRA community will certainly be preparing a response, but many individual organizations on this call will also be sharing their own perspectives. That's a great insight for them to bring back. Uh, Elisa, I, I know we only have a minute or two left. A lot of our conversation did lean in a bit on site tech and reducing the burden for, for sites. Do you, do you have so, uh, a final thought you want to put out for us there? I, 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 I've known you for years and you've been working on that challenge for years, including in your newest role. So I, I was just wondering if you might want to lend a last word there. No, I appreciate that. I, I think that many of us who come from the sponsor tech side don't have a good appreciation of the site tech that's out there and the benefits that the site tech brings. And for those who do sit sort of on more of the sponsor CRO tech side, I, I, there needs to be a greater acceptance and understanding of what that site technology can do. And we're actually working on a paper now in terms of how does a site CTMS, a site EREG, as well as site EDC eSource 
combat and sort of de-risk the most common findings that we see from a 43 inspection perspective. And so the one comment that I would make, given that it's benefiting sponsors, what can sponsors and CROs do to support the sites? And I think it does come down to budgeting, to facilitating, making it easier for sites to bring their own tech. Um, I would like to ask if, if you sort of have influence in that, can we qualify the site tech tools centrally instead of each sponsor going to every individual site to qualify their tool? That's burden on the site and burden on the sponsor. And quite frankly, that's going on with us right now where we've got two different sites that are getting inspected by the same sponsor. And we're saying, can't we help you qualify that tool centrally so that you both can just use the qualification and move on to other aspects. And I think we're just beginning to scratch the surface of sort of the win-wins that are there for both sites and CROs and sponsors when they collaborate together. Most definitely. I think that theme about defining minimum quality standards, the, the requirements, this is not unique from one company to the next. Um, I did pin the link at the top of your screen for the ACRP uh, a PDF document about that study that Susan had mentioned. If you're not able to access that because you're on a podcast, that's cool. Just check out ACRP.net, uh, sorry, ACRPnet.org, ACRPnet.org, and find that information over there. Of course, a lot of the content we're talking about here also over at DTRA.org for the work that we mentioned there. I would love to thank Susan Landis, as well as Elisa and Adam for jumping on with us today and sharing some perspective from the last week. And of course, Christine and Nelson for jumping in with their perspective. Everyone for joining into the very active chat that's been going on. Remember to uh, click a follow for uh, the club here. Click a subscribe if you're on a podcast. Follow some of the great voices as well that participated in this week's conversation. Have a fabulous weekend, everybody. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks, Craig. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks so much. Thanks.